Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased to have with me today Dr. Charles Mayer to tell us all about his book, published by Harvard University Press in 2023, titled The Project State and Its Rivals, A New History of the 20th and 21st Centuries, which is a really interesting book that takes a story that we think we know about how the 20th century goes and pokes at it a bit, um, asks us to think about it in a different way to help us understand the impact of the world wars on our own time in ways we might not have done before. So, Charles, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Uh, Thank you, Miranda, for hosting me. Happy to have you. Before we get into the book itself, would you mind introducing yourself a bit and explain why you decided to write this? Okay. Well, I am a professor emeritus, uh, quite emeritus now, of uh, European and global history at Harvard. Uh, And this is my eighth book that I've written. I mean, I've edited things in many articles, but this is the eighth substantial book. And I, it, it's an effort at reconsidering, obviously, as the subtitle says, uh, the 20, 20th century history. I, w- I was hoping, w- wanted to do something more general and encompassing than earlier uh, topics. I've, ha- I've done a lot of different topics uh, on, the ni- on the 1920s in Europe, a lot of topics on the Cold War and the uh, aftermath of World War II. Uh, topics in German history, the uh, collapse of East Germany and how, why that took place. Uh, so I was ready to do something a little more synthetic, but I didn't want to write just another narrative, uh, another just, you know, I didn't want to write everybody's first book on the 20th century. I, in fact, wanted to write everybody's second book on the 20th century. So. Hmm. What an interesting way of thinking of it. Thank you for that introduction. Given what you were hoping to do with the book, um, could you tell us a bit about the questions you decided to focus on and how you developed them? Well, the questions were, I mean, it's, I was struck when I started, in fact, there's another motive. I was very struck when I started work on this, which is five, six years ago, in 2018, probably, and uh, that in 1989, in the early 90s, the commentary of journalists and the feeling, I think, of observers was of great optimism. The communist systems had collapsed. Uh, if one followed elsewhere, uh, the military dictatorships in in uh, South America, the apartheid system in uh, South Africa, these at all these were ending, and. Uh, you know, it was uh, it was called the end of history, which was a rather uh, you know silly title, but uh, it was a thought that we were all converging on benevolent systems of governing ourselves, uh, and perhaps there would be a, an abatement of international conflict that came with that. But by the ninth, by the two thousands, and certainly with the financial uh, crisis of two thousand nine ten not to mention uh, uh, September 11th, 2001, uh, the mood had changed. Uh, we, we thought things were heading toward collapse. And I just 
wondered why this discrepancy? How could we have gone from a period of such optimism to a period of pessimism, which I think is only deeper now? Uh, and is it was it possible to 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 write a history, a narrative that could both encompass the optimism and the pessimism that could account for both the uh, ups and the downs, so to speak. And that was behind what I was trying to do. And to do that, I had to think about the units uh, of history that we normally studied. And normally, uh, historians have had, uh, writing on contemporary history, have uh, separated their accounts into good guys and bad guys, uh, Democrats and authoritarians, if you want. And this has been the major analytical cleavage I think historians and the political scientists have used in thinking about the world situation, who are pro-democrats and who are more authoritarian or less democratic. And I thought there must be a different way of trying to see the, the this situation uh, or you know or how could I find categories that would allow us to transcend that division? No, that makes a lot of sense. Um, as you said, trying not to write the first book on the topic, but to bring things together in a different way. So can you introduce us then to the key protagonists in the book and how you define them? Well, the key, <coughs> sorry, the, the uh, chief protagonist, I guess, although it's it's only one of three or three and a half or four, is the, is the project state, which is uh, an ambitious State. It's not just a state that's or a political regime that seeks to continue itself in government to win the next election or prolong its rule. It is a it is a it is a regime that wants to change society to intervene in what we once called as we still do civil society and reshape it and maybe change mentalities. And that was the that I thought was uh, a. Uh, uh, a phenomenon that had arisen with the, the First World War in part because of the massive needs for governmental intervention to find, fight that war. But it also arose out of a series of revolutions in the early 20th century uh, uh, in, in Mexico and China and uh, Persia and many other places. The second, uh, that was one uh, one of my categories, one of my, in a sense, um, bearers of the narrative. And the second was what I'd call the resource empire. Now those largely disappear, but they were very important for project states and for other states in, uh, in, in shaping the world economy, the world political economy and taking resources uh, from what we would call the third world and bringing them back home. Uh, and, and between the wars, especially, they change nature. One, the imperial powers, Japan and Italy accepted, were no longer bent on conquering new areas. They got, they reshuffled the old German Empire after World War One and the Ottoman Empire. But this was a type of imperialism of uh, exploitation rather than conquest. And so that became a category which certainly between the wars was important. And then there was 
what I called uh, the web of I've called the web of capital. Is all the institutions, agencies, people involved in uh, in economic life in trying to uh, make profits and trying to build firms and, and credit institutions and the like. And this seemed to be a fundamental human activity and deserving of scrutiny in its own right, and especially as a, as a group of interlocked institutions that somehow interacted with states. Uh, sometimes uh, how to determine that relationship is a, was became a major problem in the book. And then finally, uh, what I called the realm of governance, which was uh, all the institutions that were supposedly designed and fancied themselves as uh, uh, seeking just good government uh, uh, governance. It was, they, they, they envisaged themselves as nonpartisan. Uh, some, many were in the field of health. Others became, went into the field of policy. And, so the, the, and, and also the institutions that countries themselves set up internationally, such as the UN and uh, uh, the, the institutions at the end of World War II, like the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund, these were all supposed to uh, benefit what we call governance. But why was he, But my notion of governance meant that they clearly defined themselves as impartial, based on discussion, if they were in committees or on science, but. The realm of governance did not, in its own right, have state institutions. They did not have power. They were uh, different from political institutions. So I had this, the project state, the uh, with its asset, the resource empire, uh, for a while, the web of capital, and the realm of governance as the major actors in this in, in this effort to explain the 20th and 21st century. Absolutely fascinating. I mean, it gives us a lot to um, ask you about further. Um, first off, putting the protagonists together with the time period. In what ways is your conception of the project state specific to the 20th and 21st centuries versus earlier? Well, there have been many project states. Most revolutions uh, involve revolutionaries who have a notion of a project state, uh, whether the Puritans in the 17th century England or the French Jacobins uh, or the uh, American colonists when they came about, came to building a constitution. Uh, so, uh, and certainly revolution, the revolutionaries around the turn of the 20th century, uh, the Mexican Revolution in 19, uh, well, yeah, 1911, the Chinese Revolution at the same time, uh, and others. These are, these are project states exist before I, you, you know, before the 20th, first century. Uh, I think the 20th century, because of the, uh, the increasing communication, uh, economic connections, and uh, wars and crises, the project state became a much bigger fixture in the 20th century than it did earlier. It was, it was sustained. It was it's it's continuous, uh, even if it 
ebbs and uh, flows in the power it can exercise. Whereas in earlier periods, it's much more a spasmodic and occasional phenomenon. Mm. Got it. That makes sense. Thank you for the clarification. As you mentioned, um, project states tend to emerge from crises or revolutions or, you know, depending on what it is, we might call it something different. But why don't all crises then yield successful project states? Uh, Well, you know, why don't, uh, why do we have wars at certain times and not others? I think uh, it it's a combination of factors. Uh, these are these were big revolutions. These were major revolutions. They're not just coup d'etats. They're not just uh, you know change of changes of one group of actors for another, and uh, and not all. Some don't. You know, some are suppressed. Some lose their energy. It's it's a great. It takes a great deal of political energy to sustain and create and sustain a project state. Uh, and the question is, why do they lose steam? I mean, why do the why does the French Revolution, in a sense, uh, it, not peter out? It it changes institutions, uh, but then at a certain point, one settles back into a type of uh, equilibrium type of government governing and i think uh i don't i don't think you can sustain a project state uh for that long and uh there may be project states in different areas i, I you know local ones i haven't uh, even you know covered uh and so many revolutions do yield something uh something like a project state but it just you know, it, it doesn't last that long or it burns itself out. They're a little like, to use an, uh, a metaphor from astronomy, they're a little like supernovas. You know, all of a sudden there's this vast explosion and, uh, the, and the, you know, the, the nebula flares outward and then collapses in on itself uh, often. And some, some collapse into cold neutron stars. No, that makes sense. Thank you. Um, If we have this idea then that this time period is when we see many more project states and that they can form for a variety of reasons, what caused then the 20th century project states to come into being? Well, uh, I think international competition uh, is a huge factor and the, the scope of the First World War is a huge factor. Uh, but there's also uh, the the tremendous uh, impact of uh, on agrarian societies of belated industrial development, the the impact of Europeans in Asia and elsewhere in, through imperialism. In other words, the, the twi- there's a there's a degree of interaction in global history, global interaction at the threshold of the 20th century. <clears throat> which did not exist before you know we didn't have uh, innovations the telegraph uh the railroad all the transportation revolutions technologies uh for uh for transporting goods uh uh this 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 these all became, were a factor from the late uh the second half of the 19th century on 
and uh, and and the fact that uh, you know Europeans uh, try you know and it's the whole wave of imperialism, uh, in, which in a certain sense introduced into countries that were being chopped up or and then you know permeated a real reaction and then Chinese intellectuals at the turn of the century 20th century you know saw warned that China would be cut up like a ripe watermelon that was their metaphor and uh, and this galvanized certain groups intellectuals sometimes military and others so that uh, I, I in a certain sense I mean I guess I would use material uh, causes uh, materialist factors is the basis of it. Uh, so, uh, the, you know, the, the opportunities of technology and transportation and uh, empire uh, had this huge reaction. And, the, and the, these, these, these factors also led to the competition that um, burst out in the First World War. And once you had a total war, or, or you know, First World War, uh, you had governments had to mobilize their economies for the immense demands of production uh, and output and uh, rationing and uh, shaping society that this war demanded. And so the project state is, arises on all sides, but the war requires that and produces it uh, in different societies. But it doesn't make it permanent when the war is over. These projects, uh, these projects fall back or ebb or they lose their energy and you get government as usual. Uh, on the other hand, the war also, because of its devastation, you know, unleashes huge revolutions in, uh, in uh, the countries that lose uh, Russia, the Ottoman Empire. Uh, the German and Austro-Hungarian empires, and out of that come project states that revolutionaries form. Uh, no, it's so, you know, history is so interrelated and so multi-causal and so uh, uh, is circular. Is not quite the right word, but uh, I think I think endogenous. You might say it. It causes them. It affects emerge from previous causes continually and so this is a, this is a threshold for the project state anyway it was it was the convenient place to begin a narrative and uh, it seemed to me that we're still you know this is the this is where our modern era begins hmm. All right. Well, thank you for sharing that with us. Um, thinking about, as you said, the kind of multiple causes, the multiple layers going on, especially in this early 20th century formation process. Of course, this is a period in which empire is still very much a political structure uh, that remains relevant. So what was the relationship between empires and project states? And how did this change over the course of the 20th century? Well, Empire, uh, ambitious states, even you call them that, and states caught up in international competition, uh, you know, 
wanted and needed empire. I mean, empire exists before uh, this era. You you know, you have earlier empires, uh, the first British Empire, as it's called, and uh, French Empire. These are these are empires formed in the 17th and 18th century, and indeed the longest lasting ones are those for states that are hardly project states like Portugal and then Spain. Uh, Sustained, they're not sustained project states. So empire is a project. It's an alternative type of project. It doesn't have the ambition to change the society at home. It has the ambition to make the regime and the country uh, more powerful and, and wealthy. Uh, so em- empire is a project, uh, and it and fascinates and entices uh, most countries that might be able to participate in it. So a small country like Belgium uh, manages because of its monarch to acquire a huge uh, imperial realm in the Congo, to take one example. Uh, but these empires obviously are have to be divested uh, at the end of the Second World War, if not before. It's unfashionable. And so you get the wave of decolonization. But and this is why I think that empire is an important category for me, even though the formal empires subsist. Uh, the, the structure, the residues of empire, or the, the patterns set by empire, have after all permeated also uh, what, I, what I call the web of, web of capital. There are so many economic interests tied up uh, with empire, and uh, that persists. Ultimately, empire is a type of, is a relationship of inequality. I did write a book on empire back uh, 10 years ago or so, uh, asking whether America had been an empire. And this, I was provoked by our Iraq war. Uh, and you can see that empire is an, is a exploitative and an unequal relationship uh, and it continues without the formality of empire because uh, the, 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 the structures of capital and uh, government are are created and they and they last. Uh, so uh, so em- empire, one type of empire disappears, but the resource empire continues and uh, and that, that's important. Or the resource, you know, no. the uh, the asymmetry of resources and power. Uh, the people in the uh, in the uh, the the African realms that were colonized are not. It goes one way. We we do, we don't have uh, uh, France or Britain colonized by uh, their their African territories. The uh, uh, just as the Chinese did not until until very recently didn't didn't you know we're not we're not running London uh, so these are one way structures that deeply bequeath you know impact the the other aspects the my other major actors even when the even when formally they cease to exist. Mm-hmm. Thank you for helping us understand um, kind of more similarities than the terms might initially yeah. imply. Sorry, there's a reason this book is 500 pages. So. <laughs> well, speaking of terms, I'd love to ask you about one that you use 
somewhat uniquely, the term governance. What do you mean by this? And why do you think it's so key to understanding this time period? Well, governance refers to a type of influence that, that you know, institutions, foundations, uh, individuals try to exercise on the basis of what they consider to be a, uh, a non-exploitative and non-political relationship. People uh, take take the Royal Institute of International Affairs, uh, Chatham House in Britain, Council on Foreign Relations in the United States, and you know these institutions have proliferated all over. Or you take foundations, uh, the, the Rockefeller Foundation, the Ford Foundation, uh, the Wellcome Foundation. Uh, the, they seek or they fancy themselves as being non-political. Essentially, the foundation says we do not have, we do not legislate. We are not running for office. Uh, we suggest and fund uh, solutions we think are beneficial in a certain non-partisan way or, you know, and, uh, and, and governance refers to this, this activity. And it's become a huge activity, really, of shaping policy without directly employing political power. So that's why I that's why I divorce the state and governance institutions. Uh, and what happens, I think, though, in the last 50 years is that, in fact, since many of these institutions are founded by philanthropists who are wealthy, but in general, I think governance, the institutions representing governance are in sort of a symbiotic relationship with the institutions representing capital. Uh, uh, I mean, just like, you know, I, I joke with my academic colleagues, the foundations need our ideas and we need their money. Uh, and that's what the relationship is based on. It's not based on power or politics and govern, but government agencies also need these institutions and government agencies set them up often to avoid rivalries, such as the creation of uh, the, the UN agencies and, and before that, the League of Nations agencies. So, so governments is a sort of capacious category to define all these structures that seek that claim influence on the basis of wisdom, science, and uh, often discussion because that's the mode they operate on. They sit around a table and and discuss. So it's it seemed to me a major actor in international and national uh, uh, run, running of societies that most of our uh, that had not been properly integrated into the other major actors uh, important in society. In a very similar way, um, you also talk about in the book the importance of debt as being crucial to understanding what's happening before World War II, as well as the world afterwards. Um, similarly, something that is not always integrated. So can you talk us through how debt helps us understand these two crucial time yeah, periods? I'm fascinated by debt uh, because it is, 
uh, it's the question of time uh, is involved in, in debt. And it is for it is how the what I call the web of capital negotiates in, in permanence or enduring through time periods. Uh, the debt is a way of allowing people in the present to uh, make claims on resources uh, that they could not otherwise claim and that they uh, promised us in a sense to pay back with some extra payment in the future. And it just strikes me, uh, it's the way that our societies uh, in effect make themselves continuous through time. Uh, the state doesn't necessarily have to do it directly, but insofar as it has to purchase resources and labor power and the like, it, it too needs debt. It's just, uh, it's it's sort of like a type of, uh, I wouldn't say bloodstream, but it is, it, 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 it is how we connect present and future uh, and to a degree past. Uh, so I, I, it's a sort of temporal glue uh, that complex modern societies use. And wartime required it. Uh, it's not that, you know, it, it isn't, uh, debt is not, it's often misunderstood I mean, because we, we think it means you're borrowing money for, for for when you don't have resources, but in fact, uh, you know, government governments. Uh, I use this analogy when I used to teach World War One and Two. I said, you know, governments could not ultimately draft babies or unborn babies into their armies and promise to pay it back later. Uh, so when you, you know, and in a certain sense. Governments can only have so much physical product they can dispose of, but they can rearrange it and they can create claims on it that will have an impact later on. So I think of debt as a fundamental uh, co collapsing mechanism for collapsing time in political calculation. I think that's a very helpful way to think about it, especially for those of us who are not necessarily economic historians. Um, it phrases it in a way that works beyond just economic history. So that is a very helpful um, thing to think about. Um, of course, the financial system that we're sort of discussing around before World War II, during and after, uh, doesn't quite, you know, that the equilibrium doesn't quite stay stable as the century progresses. Can you help us understand why the equilibrium between project states, empire and capitalism came under such strain in the late 1960s? And what do you think is significant about how this was fundamentally renegotiated? I by coincidence, I've just been involved in a, a, a sort of a webinar with Harold James, who has a new book out on financial crises, uh, and it's you know he he differentiated supply and demand crises. Uh, I think uh, I think all economic crises, in a certain sense, are. I mean, you get famines, you get starvation, but mostly economic cycles are endogenous. Uh, there's a certain 
uh, Keynes used the phrase animal spirits, you know, people, uh, you get, there's a reason we have economic cycles. It's a self-reinforcing behavior. And at a certain point, one looks around and says, uh, there's no basis for the, uh, for the confidence in the future of a particular set of enterprises. Uh, do you ever look at the, uh, you, do you, I don't know, the, the Roadrunner cartoons? Uh, your children or other children of your audience may, you know, Roadrunner is always uh, pers- pursuing, uh, the fox is always pursuing road this Roadrunner bird and over a cliff and then it keeps on going until he looks down and then, of course, realizes he's got nothing under his feet and crashes. <coughs> and in a certain sense, that's what an economic cycle is about. There's uh, there's an economist who is quite somewhat uh, unorthodox, a man named Hyman Minsky in the United States, and uh, he's one. He's 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 discussed cycles where, at a certain point, you know, a new opportunity, a new technology provides an opportunity, uh, whether that's textiles in the late 18th century or uh, <coughs> railroads in the mid mid 19th century or. Uh, you know, later, you know, all radio, television, they, these opportunities are real because they are technological, but they attract a whole host of investors who uh, who gamble on their future far beyond what sectoral contribution they can make. And then at a certain point, someone realizes they have vastly overextended expectations. <coughs> Sorry, I'm getting a little hoarse up. The dot-com, uh, revol- dot-com crisis was one of these. Uh, the subprime crisis in housing. <coughs> Can you excuse me just for a minute while I get some... Supposedly this one where expectations take off without a sufficient basis, where speculation takes over. I mean, we, 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 we have so many analyses of speculative behavior and and their cyclical uh, cyclical effect, and uh, so that's uh, this amount of debt. Adjusting the present to the future is is, is not easy. And the, the future seems a great opportunity for making money uh, for the realm of capital. And then at a certain point, people say, uh, "We've just uh, the future isn't going to be as, as sustainable as we thought it was." So. Uh, so that's that's these these cycles are, are 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 critical. If you don't mind, could we stay on the topic of debt and these cycles um, for one further sure, question? Sure. Moving from the nineteen sixties and kind of this renegotiation, um, and as you've just listed, <laughs> uh, the sixties are a period of uh, secular, you know, widespread inflation. Uh, and uh, part of that is part of that is social. There's uh, there are social conflicts over division of the social product between, let's say, labor and capital and others. Uh, part of it is uh, is just a feeling of great expectations, uh, and this uh, and part of it then becomes a question of. The uh, let's say that it isn't the third world anymore, but let's say the, the producers of uh, uh, 
oil and others uh, saying, and, and also uh, third, what we call third world countries saying, we should, uh, we are being exploited. You know, we're not being paid uh, properly for our resources. And so you have the oil crisis and the whole, uh, whole effort to, uh, for the third world to get, share more in what it considers are uh, resources that are being taken from it. And that plays out in the the, the, the the 70s. But it's also, there are also financial errors. The United States bore a large responsibility for the inflation of the 60s when uh, we tried to finance the Vietnam War by borrowing rather than taxation. Uh, again, a use of uh, the future uh, that, um, so to speak, the future catches up with us. <laughs> and uh, and that's that's and then you get these these crises and uh, uh, collapse. But you can you know please feel free to you know push me on this. Uh, it may not be quite transparent when I describe it. No, I, I think that part is. Um, but sort of if we kind of then see what happens next, um, you talk about the obviously the the kind of renegotiating the place of debt and how that all works. Um, and yet in the 1970s, we see countries stop defaulting on debt, um, pretty notably, really. Can you help us understand why this happens when it does? Start defaulting or stop defaulting? Stop. Well, at a certain, you know, at a certain, look, the biggest default of all, let's say in the European area, did not take place. Uh, that is, the, you know, the, the, the Greek crisis, the crisis of Greek debt, uh, that was that was negotiated a settlement over time was negotiated which did not require Greece to leave the eurozone uh, even though it had massively overborrowed let's say from Germany and other places and uh, it essentially instead of one major default being borne by you know the, by one, one power, a certain amount of uh, loss was accepted by all the people in the eurozone, uh, which I think was was wise. I mean, the Germans to get look at you know are reluctant to uh, accept, were reluctant to accept that, but the consequences of the eurozone collapsing seemed uh, uh, far too unpredictable and potentially catastrophic to to allow it to happen. So a way was found found out ultimately. You know the 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 debt that is uh, that one realizes this this debt is is these are fictitious assets. Uh, it's like what happens with inflation is a way of revealing how fictitious the effort is. Uh, the great infl- we're better at inflation than we were. I mean, we have serious inflation in the '60s, but compared to the hyperinflations. Uh, in Europe, and then after World War One, they were, and even in some places, Eastern Europe after World War Two, these were m- much different. I mean, we're we're talking about, uh, you know, up to let's say, and I've I've tried to write on these degrees of inflation. Uh, you, you know, you look at Argentina today; they've had, they've selected a who knows, a rather adventurous candidate uh, after a period of 100% inflation. But the inflations after World War II were, uh, went up to thousands of percents at times of devaluation. Uh, 
we've we've avoided that. Uh, but they 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 cause a total re, they cause a realignment of uh, forces. What one does see in settling debt crises and bringing down inflation is that the left parties or center left parties that have been often larger spenders, public spenders, are, are uh, compelled to withdraw from power. Uh, periods of monetary stabilization are also periods in which pa- power regimes pass from the, uh, the the left to the right in many ways, and uh, we may we may be in such a period at the uh, at the present. I I can't say. Uh, I like. It. No, that yeah. that's good to understand. Yeah. Um. If, if you don't mind kind of staying in this realm of linking the present or the recent present with the past, um, as you said right at the beginning, that's one of the goals of the book, right? Bringing all of this to help us understand where we're at now. So why towards the end of the book do you spend a decent chunk of time um, looking at Viktor Orban's 2014 speech? Because of all the populists, to use that phrase, which... Uh, I think he's he, he provided the most coherent statement of what he was doing. Uh, I mean, it was a small country. He said he wanted to build a new sort of state. He he had a theory of history, which is he said, uh, you know, he just said just as the world first world war, you know, was it was responsible for many of the political formations of the interwar period. So he felt that his type of govern government populism uh, and the search for a, a state which wasn't a parliamentary state uh, was a product of the financial crisis of 2008 and on. And I just thought, uh, I certainly don't like this man politically, but at least he's reflecting on what has prompted his success and what is what made it possible. And uh, so, uh, so he, he put a, he, you know, it, it was a great place to find a reasoned statement by people who are often unreasonable uh, in there. You know, just we think of them as just, uh, I mean, my, you know, that don't have a don't have any reflection on history. And Orban had had a reflection on history, not one I like, but but one. It was it was a it was a good place to find the the people I don't like. Having putting into you know some sort of coherent statement what they were doing. Hmm. No, that makes sense. Um, the coherent statement is important, right? The articulation of what people are trying to do, um, and it is hard to I find. I mean, I don't think you know to take Mr. Modi for instance in India. I don't think he's clearly got us. You know, he talks about the ethnicities of uh, India, uh, Hindus and Muslims, but he doesn't particularly offer a historical statement. And Orban was offering a historical statement reflection. Mm. Yeah, no, that's a very important and useful distinction. So thank you for highlighting it in the book and mentioning it here. Um, I almost hesitate to ask because, as you said, this is a pretty hefty book that's doing a lot of things. Um, So the answer could be very well-deserved rest. But as my final question, um, now that this book is available, is there anything you might be working on you'd like to preview for us? Well, I... 
I have this personal sort of what I would call Scheherazade complex. Uh, you remember she's the uh, creature, the, the woman in the Arabian Nights who... Uh, yes, that tells the stories. Yes, and she has to tell the stories because otherwise she'll be executed by the sultan or whoever uh, her uh, husband is. So each night she comes up with a new story to prolong her existence. And uh, so I sort of think of my writing in that, that sense, I mean, until I completely, you know, uh, degenerate. Uh, I, I, I will try and figure something out. Uh, I, we'll, we'll see. And, you know, well, you have to choose a project differently. I mean, I'm going to be 85. Uh, you don't know whether, you, you know, no one can predict how much mental alertness or physical uh, vitality they'll be granted uh, at that age. Uh, so what I'm doing now is is something I think is a little less demanding, but interesting. And some of my students have uh, suggested, I've been in a university setting. I mean, I haven't done anything but universities, really. Uh, but I've done that for 60 years or so. So I'm trying to write, combine a type of intellectual autobiography uh, of, you know, of my career as a, as a historian, how it developed and what I've done with it, with a discussion of the intellectual problems that doing history at different times has presented for as each of the, you know, each of the books. Uh, I mean, part of that when my first book, which is, uh, appeared in 1975 called uh, recasting bourgeois Europe, the question, I took three countries, France, Germany, Italy, and tried to do, treat them comparatively. So it, this raises the issue of how do you do historical comparison and what use is it? And then, uh, I discuss, I did a lot of political economy work. Uh, I did a I did work on Germany because I that was the country I had started studying. Uh, so when uh, the Princeton Press asked me for a book on what was happening in East Germany in the winter of 1989-90, which became a book in 1997, so that uh, that raises the problems of uh, for the historian: how do you go from how do regimes disintegrate or how do revolutions take place? Um, so each of these books has involved a substantial intellectual inquiry for me. Uh, and then the question of, uh, uh, I did one on territory borders and territory. And I think this is, uh, you know, you know, what, how do we get a regime of bordered territories, which I think is still timely because migration and the, Efforts to cross borders is a crucially uh, crucial issue of our time. So what I will try and do is write an account of how I stumbled from book to book, but also from major major historical puzzles to major historical puzzles. When do when does social order, economic order break down? Uh, what uh, what caused the question of causality, which is a really murky issue I mean, all these issues which will i'll try and track so that's that should keep me busy uh, but i hope is you know i can at least make a stab at it within a finite period of time and help help well 
that sounds like a really interesting project, especially coming off of the book we've been discussing. Um, so best of luck with that in every aspect. Um, and to remind our listeners, the book we have been talking about is titled The Project State and Its Rivals, A New History of the 20th and 21st Centuries, published by Harvard University Press in 2023. Charles, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. No, thank you, Miranda. I hope your listeners enjoy it.